Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast, the weekly podcast dedicated to conversations on faith and culture. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thank you so much for joining us this week, which is our 50th episode. Almost a full year doing Irenacast every week, nonstop, with a few bonus episodes here and there. I don't know about you guys, but this makes me happy. 50. That's crazy. It's I'm almost a year. I'm so excited that I got sick at being so excited. <laughs> You're like that little kid who can't wait for Christmas and like makes themselves puke. That's exactly, so <laughs> that's exactly right. That's not yeah. what happened. A little, little snifflies, some sort of throat. Oh. Yeah. I just imagine you cuddled up with a teddle bear. A teddle bear? A teddy bear. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm super stoked. I am. 50 weeks of showing up. It's pretty cool. Like it, it takes a tremendous amount of effort <laughs> mm-hmm. to keep the show going, and it's effort that's enjoyable but, effort. But, but in it's some a lot ways, yeah, in some ways, yeah. it's no effort at all because yeah, you guys are wonderful, and these topics are great. Love talking Aww. about this stuff. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So, just a couple items of business to get out of the way before we continue on with our conversation, which I guess is going to be a sporadic conversation. This is going to be our second listener feedback episode. So we have some questions from you, our listeners, that we're going to be talking about and addressing. But if you notice in the last couple of weeks or so, we've introduced an, um, a way to support the show quasi-financially through your Amazon shopping. And uh, we've mentioned in the past that we have an Amazon banner at our website at uh, irenacast.com slash support. If you've bookmarked that link, if you could, re- go back and rebookmark it. The, the The URL had to change a little bit, so we did some stuff behind the scenes. And um, So if you are supporting the show through the Amazon banner, you'll need to update that link. So our first question comes from Facebook, and it's from listener Dakota. And they're asking, I'd like to hear your guys' take on extra biblical writings like the Gospel of Thomas and Mary, the Lost Books of Enoch, etc., are they to be taken as scripture? Are they blasphemy? Or did the Council of Nicaea just see them as unworthy because of their messages? Ooh, that's a question. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah, is. The beginning an awesome the, question. The beginning of the question says they're not sure if, they, if we could fit this into one topic because we could talk about this a lot. We should. Sure. We should have a whole episode on extra canonical writings. We really should. Yeah. Um, but in the meantime, in we'll the, do meantime, a quick bullet point sure. of some of these things to get the ball rolling. Well, so um, Dakota mentions a few different books, and they come from different times and places. Like he, um, he mentions the Lost Books of Enoch. Enoch is like a Jewish source, extra biblical Jewish source um, from like 300 years BC. And Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas, is the other direction, like pretty far removed from um, AD coming from a Gnostic Greek source. So they're a little bit different. Um, But basically you have these writings that were written at the same time as the biblical texts, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the new Testament. And the question is like, how do we handle them? Why do, why are they not included in the Bible? Things like that are really, really good questions. But underneath all of it is the basic basic assumption that a lot of us have that's completely wrong is that Christianity was a monolithic thing or even Judaism was monolithic as in it was uniform and there was no disagreements and there was, you know, this Bible was just handed to us. The picture that is painted um, by scholarship lately is that Christianity really early on was much more diverse, 
probably even that it is now. Um, and Jewish writings, they've always known. If you ask anybody who's been a part of Jewish context, they've always known there's all these other writings that they hold dear that are may not be included in some sort of canon, but for them have been pretty influential. So to approach this question, we could just say as Christians, the book of Enoch and maybe some of the the stuff from the New Testament times, like the Gospel of Thomas, these things might be good for context, you know, to help us read the Bible better, so we we know like the thought of the time or something like that. But for others, they other Christians would say they actually contain some sorts of wisdom, even though they're not included inside a biblical text. But we should talk about why they're not included, though. So the Council of yes. Nicaea, yeah, it's kind of similar. You know, these these old councils that decided what canonical books are, which later thinkers and theologians have disagreed with. For example, Martin Luther said, Revelation in the book of James like have no mm. place in the canonical Bible. So a lot of people have come along since, very smart people, and said, for this or that reason, why was this the choice? And that's because at yeah, the time... You, what? Go ahead. You, you can make an argument that Martin Luther's reasonings were anti-Semitic, because he was. Oh, so, he was. He was. He, yeah, I'm just, not defending him. I'm not defending him, but he was a, his, a significant historical figure, you know, and his, yes, his, and he's had a lot of influence, right? So I, I, I can't stand his, him. He's, he's an awful vitriolic human. <laughs> if <laughs> like you actually read are. his writings, like we he, all he constantly are. is tell, calling people dogs and whatnot. So it's, mm-hmm. um, anyway, the Council of Nicaea, it's, it's important to remember it was a, it was a small hierarchical group. So it's a, it's a small group of people, learned people, smart people. But at the time, this was their understanding of, what sacred books ought to be. They ought to be kind of historically verifiable. They ought to be consistent-ish or at least um, able to, the books ought to be able to talk to each other and not have really strong inconsistencies. We have to have a kind of a sense of their authorship. These kinds of things. We have to to verify their geographical locations. mm -hmm. Like they can't talk about fanciful places that didn't exist. They have to be historically grounded. Those are some of the criteria that A few books were thrown out because they were, they were, in the council's mind, obviously not written by the apostle. They were uh, pseudepigraphas, so they said that they were written by an apostle, but they weren't. Ironically, some of the stuff that does get into the New Testament is still probably not written by the apostle that its name is ascribed to. But there's at least one case of the council throwing something like that out because it didn't have the verifiable authorship. Uh, yeah, but- so... It- it's important to remember that the Council of Nicaea is really similar to our modern day process of the Supreme Court. Does what the Supreme Court say matter? Yeah, it matters a lot. And that determines the laws of the land, but it's not completely universally fixed for all time. Mm-hmm. It was called together by the Emperor Constantine. So when you said hierarchical, that's like as hierarchical as it can get. But still, yeah. I believe it was important. And I think a positive view of the Council of Nicaea is to say you had leaders and bishops from churches around the world getting together at least the latin world getting together and determining like these are the books that we use yes and they even voted you know like raise your hand on which book do you recognize the really like favorable view of that council and canonicity would say which book do you recognize as being like the the canon that god has ordained and you're just recognizing it and the other view of it would be well, they're just voting on the ones that they thought were more were most orthodox and the ones that were heresy they put to the side. I think what's important, though, um, as far as the extra biblical stuff, until 1945, we didn't have a whole lot. So our studying of extra biblical material, at least for the New Testament, 
really took off in 1945. What um, happened in 1945, was, Alan? <laughs> what happened in 1945? There was two brothers digging for fertilizer around a cave, and they had uncovered some Coptic papyri written in the Coptic language. And it turns out in this town in Upper Egypt that they were at, digging around these caves, at there was an ancient place called Nag Hammadi, and there were over 50 books that had been buried, um, buried away. And when they, when archaeologists uncovered them, they ended up becoming like Plato's, not becoming, they ended up recognized as um, some of Plato's writings that were put into um, Coptic, some early Gnostic Christian, like the Gospel of Thomas and other ones come from this little containment area. And what a lot of scholars say is when Athanasius um, determined that all of these outside extra canonical sources, the stuff that shouldn't be in the Bible for the Orthodox Christians, when those were outlawed, some scholars think that um, a monk or a scribe hid a bunch of this Gnostic material at Nag Hammadi and buried it, and then we discovered it in 1945. So there's a really wasn't important there, wasn't book. Wasn't that around the same time as the Dead Sea Scrolls? Roughly. I don't know offhand. That's a great story, and I love it so much. I think it was the 50s. Yeah, yeah, that yeah was we're, we're discovering. The same time. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. The as far as the Gnostic Gospels go, um, I don't believe any of them were discovered at the Dead Sea Scroll area. Um, but yeah, it's around the same time. Elaine Pagels or Poggles—I don't know how you say her name. She wrote like the seminal work on the Gnostic Gospels, called the Gnostic Gospels in the seventies, I believe. And Why it's are actually they called Gnostic? A fantastic book. Um, so they're called Gnostic because Gnostic means this comes from Gnosis, meaning knowledge. And the whole idea was that Jesus had this secret knowledge that he passed down to his apostles that eventually made its way to the Gnostic teachers, but that most people didn't have access to. So it's like this secret knowledge. And you get, you get some of that in the New Testament, right? Jesus says stuff in parables to public, but then he takes his disciples aside and says, well, this is what they really meant. This is what that story meant. And so he passes on this information. So there were, the, there was this whole sect of Christianity and some people, Bart Ehrman, I believe makes the uh, case that it was much more popular than, than we could, than we previously imagined that there was these like cults of Gnostic teachers who said, this is information that has been passed on from Jesus and the apostles to me that needs to be kept secret until you're advanced enough in your faith. Then you can be given this information and reach enlightenment because it might be dangerous for you to have otherwise. And some people see Paul's statements or new Testament texts that are are attributed to Paul saying, Hey, we are, we, we preach openly. We don't preach in secret. We don't have these secret, you know, knowledge stuff that gets passed on. And they see that as being over and against the Gnostics. I think. Yeah, it's. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Good. Well, I was going to say it's, it's, it's beyond ideological too. That, that is important. Um, but you, in order to understand the Council of Nicaea, you have to understand earlier councils and Christological debates that rejected the idea that Jesus was this floating disembodied spirit that didn't quite touch the ground. That's what I believe was called, uh, docetism and a bunch of other stuff. So when, when they're choosing these, what they call canonical books, they're, they're choosing books that represent Jesus in the way that they've decided Jesus um, embodied the the divine God man, the the two natured, um, you know, Messiah Christological figure. So anything that that didn't represent Jesus in that way, as in a Gnostic version of Jesus, was rejected. So that all happened at the the, the Council of Nicaea was the first council, and that all happened at the 
the same council. That was part of why they, yeah, that's part of why they accepted some books and not others. But the, the Christological, Christological debates question. had been going on for a long time. Yeah, but for like two hundred years. Yeah, there 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 wasn't previous councils though. That that was like you're right, but that's where it came to a head, and that drove a lot of the decisions. It, it, it's really interesting. Like, uh, we we think in concepts of them being heretical or wrong as opposed to being completely right. And I think it's more helpful to think of history as being written by the winners. And yeah, it's not know, a binary switch. It, yeah, yeah. It's like there there are stuff in the Gospels of Thomas and others. I think the Gospel of Thomas is weird, but it has some really cool stuff. And I think that there's stuff in other Gnostic scriptures that's that might be good for people. Good for like for instance, um, for instance, the Gospel of Thomas teaches things about enlightenment, enlightenment, and how the kingdom of heaven is like inside of us, and it's something that we progress in it has these really good concepts that people have uh have rediscovered and have been very important for their faith so that the, true there's this, but but the last verse of the gospel of thomas yeah. says in order to enter the kingdom of god you, you must, a woman must become a male, become a male. Like, yeah so it's sure. very like well there, it's balanced yeah and and there's there's stuff in the new testament that that makes people uncomfortable you know i'm but, pretty glad that's not been in scripture <laughs> personally <laughs> Yeah, there's there's stuff like the um I think it was the Gospel of Peter well, or the there's like a walking cross that comes out of the tomb and it has There's like dozens of talk. there's dozens of these types of books and they're really mm-hmm. fascinating. I think that the Da Vinci Code like people who study theology and biblical studies like get really annoyed at the Da Vinci Code cuz like I just saw it recently for the first time. <laughs> like it what it really does is it like it makes it sensationalizes biblical studies and like takes like kind of historically factual stuff. Like, yeah, there is a yeah. gospel of Thomas and Mary, but then it makes it into this like Illuminati, like crapshoot where things have to be like uber sexy and sensational in order to be <laughs> interesting. You know? So I think those of us who study this stuff are like, okay, come on. Like the, the real life stuff is as interesting, if not more, because it actually happened. You know, like we don't have secret societies still trying to protect, protect the heir of jesus like that we know sort of i mean well so so for the the gnostics like if if a scribe did bury all that stuff because the books were being burned and people were being killed because they were heretics if that's the story i don't i don't think we can really reconstruct exactly what happened then there is an element of that like sexy underground we have the real sayings of jesus the secret stuff that was passed on from the apostles oh i think i think they believed it but the problem for me and i think this is this is where it where it comes to ahead for me is that there's good stuff maybe in, in the, the so the, these teachings of Jesus that are called the Gnostic teachings. But the problem is those Gnostic scriptures, the, the ones that we have, um, they teach, <laughs> they teach two different gods, one being a higher God, one being a lower God. Um, they have, they have a lot of parallels to Buddhism and some really good things on enlightenment like the whole Gnostic teachings. So there's some positive elements to it, but you can't really pull it away from their theistic construction of how they saw the cosmos. And that was, there was this good God, this higher God. And then there was this lower God, Yahweh, who was like malicious and created humankind just to be served by humans. And so like Jesus is like this better, um, Jesus is not even necessarily divine, but Jesus has a better teaching than Yahweh. And it really makes a sharp divide between these things. And so for me, those uh, theistic elements are some of the more unfortunate stuff. And that's that's why that stuff got um, rejected by the different councils, is that the stuff that Gnosticism says about God is pretty intense. Enlightenment, the kingdom being here and in us, that stuff is awesome. 
but to buy into their construction of the world, you can't divorce that from the stuff that that's about God. And on a side note, as far as us discovering Gnostic gospels and turning them into like sexy movies or, you know, the next article comes out and says, Oh, we just discovered this text. Did Jesus have a wife? Did this happen? Did that happen? No, that's Wait, legit. Those are so, legit debates so, though. Yeah. Well, well, hold on. So the, the, the problem, the problem is there has been some scholarship that has worked really hard to at least locate and push the Gnostic texts as far back as possible. Just like the Orthodox scholars would try to push the gospels as far back as they could to the life of Jesus. There has been this push to have these other, other scriptures, Gnostic scriptures pushed back and Craig. As far as the dating. Yeah. As far as dating. yeah. Yeah. Craig A. Evans, he wrote books like fabricating Jesus and he does some other work. He points out that there's, there's so many reasons to believe that the Gnostic texts that we have are older. They don't come from the first or second century. They're even pushed back in, in his scholarship to the third. You, oh, you mean newer? They have, they're newer. They're yeah. newer. Okay. The big debate is this. Were the gospels that we have in the New Testament written at the same time as the Gnostic gospels? And then the Orthodox people just chose the the canon based on what they felt was right. Or were those gospels written earlier and the Gnostic texts written later? And a lot of scholarship has tried to say that they're written as early as the gospels. A lot of people believe that's true and it could be true, but the facts don't warrant that at this point. They like the gospel of Thomas shows that it knew all four gospels, which is incredible. It, it was written after the gospels and not that the oldest stuff is the most true, but at least in scholarship, that's like the big debate right now. Around. And they, that's demonstrated right by um, like comparative text studies. Yes, to show that like there, are, like you can see this in across the the four gospels in the in the canon, the Christian canon, that there are s- whole sections that are copied, like from Mark to to Luke, for example, like whole sections, like mm-hmm. almost like word for word. So Luke is an, a newer text because it copies Mark. That like biblical scholarship can show that. So when you say the Gospel of Thomas shows that it knew all four, it means that it's got identical passages, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. To the other four, so it's newer. It it has to be. Yeah, and and that yeah. doesn't mean it's wrong or bad necessarily. We we can compare the theology of the stuff that's even in the Bible we have right now, and stuff looks different from book to book. It's not as uniform as and flat as we thought it was. There are different voices. And so I, I do believe it's important to listen to this extra biblical stuff because I do believe there's wisdom in it and I don't want to discount it out flat. But as far as the question of whether it should be in the Bible or not, personally, I think that's an important question. And it has a lot to do with dating and scholarship and you know authorship. And also, I, I believe that the spirit was operative in, in the transmission of the texts that we have, but that's a personal belief of mine. Yeah, I think that was my next question is that it has to do with your concept of what scripture is. So this question from Dakota, and it's a really fair question. Are these books to be taken as scripture? Are they blasphemy? Did it reflect the Council of Nicaea's personal opinions? Like what, what is it? I think the underlying question in that, in those questions are what is canon and what is scripture and how do we think about it? Some people think that it's the literal word of God and that the Holy Spirit took the writer's hands and actually moved the pen on the page and the writer was taken out of the equation and they're infallible, um, completely, what's the word I'm looking for? 
uh, inerrant. All those, inerrant. Thank you. There all you those go. I words. <laughs> Completely inerrant. Other people believe that they're just historical books, that the scripture just, the word scripture, the word canon just reflects how people have revered the books over time, but not because they have an inherent holiness to them. So it, it, it's a really good question for each of us to ask ourselves, how do we regard these books? And a lot of times if you you know, like like Alan said, if you have an idea that the Holy Spirit helped with the transmission of these books, you're probably going to have a, a tighter view of canon and scripture mm. than someone who just has a historical view. Yeah, you could be somewhere in the middle. Like, I believe in inspiration. I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the penning of the Bible and the collection of that stuff. But it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit and truth itself cannot be found in other texts that were written around the same time or afterward. You know, like, there's this really negative view of that stuff. That is based on um, the people who won theological arguments in ancient in the ancient world. Uh, we don't have any Gnostics talking from about their own movement from their lips or from their pen. What we do have is a bunch of church fathers fighting the Gnostics. So we have a one-sided presentation of what they believed and who they were, and it's really hard to reconstruct what their what their opinion actually was because when yeah, you just we don't have, exactly yeah we don't know yeah. yeah we we just have their opponents and so mm-hmm. it's it, it's maybe unfortunate that we don't have the whole full history but um so I, I'm somewhere in the middle I don't right away say this is just trash this is heresy this is evil this is like you know the document from demons which some people in the early church would have said yeah. but on the other hand I don't say that this should this should be in scripture you know. There was this big, huge conspiracy, and these books should have been in scripture. Um, I don't go that far because it's sensationalistic, and it's uh, it tries to push back some of these writings earlier than they should go. And you also life. have to you also have to take into account that around the time of the Council of Nicaea, this is a pre scientific Enlightenment age set of questions and debates. For example, one of the really hot bed questions, I think at the Council of Nicaea or one that was later, was how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? So they were like furiously embroiled in this debate about how small angels were. And like today we're like, we don't, who cares about that question? But that was like, that really mattered. Or or was Jesus older than Mary was a really big debate. So, and that that one makes a little bit more sense. But um, you have to remember this is this is before the age of, of modern science when we can actually date and verify things before modern archaeology and anthropology and sociology. You know, we have a lot of tools at our disposal that they just didn't have back then. Um, but the other, the other aspect of this whole thing that I want to draw some attention to is um, the question of, of Constantine's rise to power and making Christianity the official religion of Rome. And Rome collapsed, I think, about a century, not long after these councils. So a lot of scholars think that actually adopting Christianity's official religion, because Christianity has so many transnational claims that move beyond um, empire and nation state that it kind mm-hmm. of worked from the inside to unravel Rome. So when, when Constantine made Christianity the official religion, what happened was when they're upholding these these books as canonical that are very much like grounded and anti-Gnostic, it pushed out a lot of like really old um, legacies of Greek and Roman mystery cults. So that's kind of another, there's some crossover, I believe, between Gnostic and mystery cults, but mystery cults are, are really interesting them. to read about. Or absorb them. Yeah, the Christianity just absorbed all that stuff. And well, Christianity absorbed, but it also it. undid it, especially mm-hmm. because Paul didn't have a really metaphysical look at the world. Like Paul, if you read Paul's writings, he doesn't really focus on miracles as much. He's really concerned with the philosophy behind Christianity and developing concepts of Jesus divinity and things like that. So, kind kind of. But there's a huge. If you're interested in philosophy, there's a huge 
resurgence of Pauling studies by secular atheist philosophers. I find this fascinating that they're they're looking at how Paul forged Christianity and the the claims of universalism and salvation that Paul um, that Paul did. That really um, again all of this kind of work to to take over and push out older mystery cults that were more focused on like really old, I guess you could call them pagan practices and and mystery Mm. rituals and things like that. And there are parallels between that and Gnosticism because Mm. that's basically you had a really diverse picture of what Christianity looked like. And when it became, you know, baptized by Rome, it was codified and people were cut out and their texts were cut out too. And it was made, yeah, that, that's it was flattened. Yeah, flattened. it was flattened. Mm-hmm. And and think about who was flattening it and what kind of motivations. I'm not saying they were evil per se, mm-hmm. but what kind of motivations and what kind of religion would be adapted by an empire to serve its needs? That's a really, really important question. So how much of the canon that w- that we understand as Orthodox was selected by an official government governmental entity because it was conducive to that governmental entity to do you know yeah and to balance that how much of it was the church recognizing what its documents were those are the two poles of this like tension between yeah, yeah the conversations on canon we should do so there a, you a go. lot more episodes <laughs> on that this is so think, this is fun stuff isn't it that's a I, great question this is an important question because there's a, a lot of us don't know much about the transmission of the documents and how we got the Bible that we have now, even though we claim that it is the very word of God and we stake our whole lives on it and everything in the world is subject to it. But a lot of people don't have access or maybe interest in discovering how we got it in the first place. So this question is awesome and we should make more episodes about it. In my opinion, they go more into depth. So our next question um, is, can there be collective salvation or is it individual salvation? That's an interesting question, the way that's worded. Um, I know where it comes from. You know where it comes from? Yeah, that that concept. There was a statement, I think since like 1995, maybe a little bit like later than that, that Obama made about um, collective salvation or how his salvation is dependent upon the salvation of society. He can't just see it as an individual thing, but it's attached to the group, the whole. Um, for him to be saved, like the whole has to be saved. There has to be some sacrifice on his part to see, and it, and it's you know rooted in like liberation theology and some other things. But there's been a pretty big voice in evangelical Christianity that's questioned like Obama and his collective salvation, or is it private individual salvation? That classic you know evangelicalism. And, and Obama didn't originate this debate, but that's interesting that he sure. brought that public um, because he goes from a black, a black theology, black political liberation uh, tradition. He went to a, a liberal church in Chicago for many, many years that that preached that kind of gospel, which is rooted in social gospel at the turn of the century, which is related to um, a lot of black church traditions. Um, the keynote uh, theologian that's attached to this idea of social gospel theology is Walter Rauschenbusch, which I've talked about in the past because I adore his writing. So, so this um, question's for you, Mona. <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm excited about this question. So Rauschenbusch it has been criticized for rejecting individual salvation in favor of only collective salvation, meaning like the kingdom of God is ours to bring to earth and make the world better, not to just 
be privately saved through individual piety and wait for heaven after we die. Like we're responsible to bring God's kingdom to earth and we do it through social uplift. Um, evangelicals at the same, around the same time and a little bit after the fundamentalist movement and other movements, like vehemently hated this idea because they felt it did away with piety and they felt it, it threatened, um, what they understood as orthodox conceptions and the gospel. Yeah. And the gospel. Yeah. But I mean, I think Rauschenbusch's vision is, is more synchronous with Jesus's healing ministries and Jesus's political ministry. I think he Rauschenbusch got it. And what Rauschenbusch claimed was, I'm not trying to do away with individual salvation, but I'm not trying to expand both. We've erred on the side of individual salvation and piety of just like caring about your own soul and spiritualizing everything and not being any good in the world and not really healing others or only trying to heal others or feed others if you want to save their soul. And that's really objectifying. So Rauschenbusch wanted to err on the side of focusing on social and collective salvation meaning like Christianity is supposed to be a force of good and healing in the world. And that's God's vision for life on earth. And we do it through Jesus, you know, as he's very inspired by, by his faith in Jesus. But he said he wanted to expand both collective and individual salvation. So if we focus on how social, how social we are and how Christianity has potential to bring healing in the world, we also heal our own souls and save our own souls individually in the process because we're all interconnected beings. We're all interconnected creatures and the fate of my brother or sister or genderqueer neighbor is affects me like what happens to their body their material body hurts me too you know so so healing them is also healing me so i think i think it's a really helpful thing to focus on collective salvation and social justice and social gospel i think in our world where individual salvation has and and um evangelizing has been so enmeshed with colonialism and domination i think in our world uh, focusing on collective salvation is incredibly helpful i'm not saying we should do away with individual salvation but it's really i think that's up to the person and their how they interact with God and the Holy Spirit and the convictions of their own hearts. Because what's happened is we've adopted in evangelicalism, at least what I was, what I was raised with, we adopted this idea that if you say the ABC is a salvation, if you say the four, you know, it, it, confess your sins, believe in Christ and accept whatever, then you're saved. Like it's like magic. It's like a switch you turn on. You're saved. Your soul's good. And Jesus is in your heart and everything's good to go. You're going to go to heaven. You can die. You can, you can rest easy now. And I mean, that, that's a really simplistic version, but that's what Billy Graham preached. I mean, that's not, that's not far off the mark that we don't, it, it doesn't have an, an emphasis on, um, on really what it means to live into the kingdom in a way that undoes one's own selfish gain. You know, I think so that that's Mona's rant for the day, but I think collective <laughs> salvation is, is, is a great thing to focus on. It doesn't have to be either or is my, is my general point. Well, I think it depends upon what do we mean by salvation? Uh, so yeah. obviously based on the, the follow-up question, which I'll read right now, is Jesus the only way to heaven? So salvation, I'm assuming, um, from this question is linked to where do you go in the afterlife, which I have a whole lot of problems with that, mainly along the lines, Mona, of what you were just talking about. So what is individual salvation? And if if we're thinking in terms of the afterlife, which we did again, an episode on exactly, which I'm assuming that this, this person who's asking these questions is, is thinking about in those terms. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, the question of what is salvation is super important. What are we being saved from and what are we being saved to? If what we're being saved to is heaven, then great. You know, that's going to affect the way we look at salvation and we look at the way that we're 
um, working and acting in the world. I know some people who, who really strongly believe in heaven, but they say that it really shouldn't change the way we act in the world. We should still try to bring God's kingdom to earth. We should still help people and love people unconditionally. So I think the heaven part can be a little bit distracting, you know? Where, um, where, where I'm at is that <laughs> you talked about focus, right? You talked about focus on individual piety, getting us, you know, salvation or into heaven or right with God in the afterlife. And you're all good to go here. It's the narrowing of the definition of salvation. I think that Jeff's pointing to that, that bothers me a little bit is that individual, like quote unquote, individual salvation. Although these like term terminology is a little bit suspect to me, that right there, um, narrows the focus of the definition of salvation in the Bible, in the Old Testament, or in the Hebrew Bible, in the New Testament, salvation wasn't just something that happened in, at this future judgment, although there's an element of that. It was something that happened in the here and now. It was a both and. And to yeah. tease those two things out was kind of to miss the point. And when you set up you know, uh, communal salvation and individual salvation over and against each other, you're necessarily splitting that definition in half. And I don't think the message of Jesus did that. Jesus's message was the both and like we are creating a community around Jesus where people are liberated from violence. People are taken out of these systems of oppression and into the way that life should be. So salvation is a this world thing, but it's also something that impacts us at this future judgment, which we may have disagreements on, but I think it's definitely a both and. And I think that was helpful for you. I think we can't know the future judgment. So staking theologies on that pretty unknowable thing is is really speculative, in my opinion. Um, mm. But yeah, you're right. I think there there is if you read if you go back and read those biblical passages that you've been familiar with, and you you try to have a lens of what's the here and now in the text, not the spiritualized future interpretation that I've been taught to accept, maybe. But what what is this saying about the here and now? And I have a couple of scholars to point to on this because um, I'm really interested in the the ministry of Jesus, like I mentioned before. And when Jesus came, he didn't talk a lot about heaven. He didn't talk a lot about the future. He talked about healing people now, uh, doing good good things for the poor, taking care of people. And um, there's a really cool scholar named Annetta Weissenreiter. I've met her. She's wonderful. She... Um, wrote a book called Images of Illness in the, in the Gospel of Luke. And she does other work, work on uh, how illnesses were seen in the ancient world. And il- like physical illness was connected to social health. So like if a society was healthy, like th- that, th- what they thought at that time was that people would be bodily healthy. And if society was just, that people would be bodily just. So when Jesus came and healed people's physical bodies, he's also making a statement about how society should be more just. Um, Another scholar who talks about this is Rita Nishima Brock in Journeys by Heart. And she wanted to, f- she, she makes a really bold claim in the introduction of, this is an important book in feminist theology, that traditional theology, cr- traditional Christianity, she says, has made self-sacrifice the highest form of love. And a lot of feminist scholars say that that's, so, the focus on self-sacrifice and suffering has caused suffering. And that's a really big, long debate. But what what feminists try to do is take it toward um, a Christology of intimacy and relationship and healing. And so if we focus on Jesus coming to heal us and be close to us, that changes the game of like, not just focusing on Jesus's death as a lamb to slaughter and Jesus's blood, but focus on Jesus as of 
figure coming to bring us utter life and wholeness that changes the way you read the Bible, that changes the way you see Christianity. And so um, this is also kind of like another feminist scholar named Elizabeth Schusser Fiorenza, who is who does wonderful work on New T- the New Testament. And um, she writes a lot about structures of power and how Jesus came to undermine structures of power. And the best way to think about it, I think, is um, it's interesting how intertwined this is with medical imagery. But if you ever uh, gotten injured and um, your joint gets really swollen and then over time you build up so much scar tissue that you don't have full mobility in that joint. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like scar tissue is like, it's kind of like spider webs in our body that the body creates to protect that, that injured joint. And so a lot of feminist theologians and, and liberation theologians come along and say, you know, we, a lot of times we impose these structures of human power on a broken area and we impose them so much that they become dominating and stifling to the way that joint was supposed to move. It becomes too much scar tissue. And so scholars like Elizabeth Schusser-Ferenzis criticize the power structure that stifles and dominates and acts in patriarchal ways and actually even goes so far as to kill people that disagree. So um, their their concept of the ministry of Jesus was to take away and heal the scar tissue and restore the mobility of the joint or to heal society. So, so those are uh, those are different forms of of salvation that aren't mainstream so much, but I think are really helpful to see the breadth of how people conceive of salvation. Like Milton, you know, in Paradise Lost, said the original sin was pride, and Jesus comes to save us from our pride, and that's what atonement is for. That's what salvation is for. That's what Jesus' death on the cross was for to show us that we should be humble. But then feminists come along and say, well. When have women of color ever been prideful? Like we've, like we, not we, like as, but me, I'm not a woman of color, but collective as a society, we have taught women of color and women and some people in society to be utterly submissive, to not have a sense of themselves and to say that they're prideful if they so much as make a peep is really causing more damage because they've been so oppressed. So if we teach that the original sin is pride and you need to get rid of pride in your life, that message actually is only for some people that doesn't work for other people. So we have to, we have to develop a a system of salvation and a system of a concept of evil that actually works for everybody and actually speaks to everybody universally. Does that make sense? In that context also with talking about pride or whatever, that same thing is used to keep someone who's oppressed and has no pride down. Because if they do try to raise up or they do try to speak out, then they're exercising pride. So it's a double-edged sword and can be used, like you were saying, more times to oppress than build up. Yep. I think those are important elements, but we may be talking past each other. And I think this is what happens in these conversations, oh, individual versus corporate salvation is that people talk past each other like that stuff is really good but you still haven't addressed the core issue for the person that's asked the question and that is like you said we don't know about the future so let's just not talk about it right but for the person that asked the question I didn't say that exactly or, or, or you said uh making any theoretical or theological claims on the future judgment is is suspect or something like that and i said it's speculative not in, speculative and so therefore not as important as doing good here and now bringing salvation to the here and now because this is the reality that we know right and so for for this this person though is do um for for you too is it important to think about 
any sort of future judgment. Apparently, like apparently not. I don't, but do I don't you... think that's the core. Okay, no, he's not talking, or whoever he, she, they is not talking about judgment in this question. It says the question is: Is Jesus the only way to heaven? So there's Jesus, and there's only way, and there's heaven. Salvation, corporate salvation versus. Oh, I thought we moved salvation. on to the next question. We've tied the two together. <laughs> okay, we've tied the two together. Corporate salvation versus individual salvation. Salvation from judgment, right? Jesus. Jesus being the no, way to I heaven mean, not, is not a, necessarily salvation from judgment. That's what I'm trying to point to. Like people have different concepts of what we're being saved from. Exactly. And, what we're being and so saved what I, what I'm asking you to do is speak to the people who are evangelicals <laughs> and people who still hold on to the stuff that you've moved on from. And like for them, the uh the concept that individuals are still responsible for their actions and that there is a judgment and that Jesus does save them from judgment. Are you saying that that is at the very like least, it's kind of irrelevant to our lives right now, or that it's hurt people. I'm saying that that's that... a sliver of people who are probably listening to this right now. Okay, but but that I, I'm just saying that's where the question comes from. And, and I okay. would say that yes, it's irrelevant, and I don't think that. <laughs> <laughs> just putting it out there, like the fact. First of all, the idea of judgment to me, like it is so, especially biblical judgment. It's so connected with the way that they thought about. God or gods in general, that this top-down, judging the world, making everything right, looking for perfection or, or a new era or whatever. And I think that we need to evolve the way that we think about judgment. And for me, when I think of judgment, I think of when I enter into a new way of thinking, a new consciousness, so to speak, that I am my judgment. Now I have to wade through what I've thought in the past, how I interact with the world, that as I evolve, judgment comes in the in the form of change. And we can use the word judgment to attach to it, to link it to something in the past. But that's how I think in terms of when we think of, you know, if Jesus is truly, or the teachings of Jesus or whatever is truly affecting my life, then it's going to change the way I view people. It's going to change the way that I think about things, the way that I look at the world. And that in of itself is a judgment. Change is judgment. Okay. So, so what I hear you guys saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that this these questions miss the point for you. It's not about whether you're going to get into heaven through Jesus, not about whether you're going to escape punishment through like an individual acceptance for salvation. Those like those questions buy into a false dichotomy or just a small sliver of what the message actually was of Jesus. I think it's not expansive. Well, I I don't, I think it's not expansive enough. It's not nuanced enough. And I think it, it misses out. Not that it's wrong, but I think it misses out. Like, you ever met a teenage kid who it you know let, let's take there's two this teenage is gonna kids. turn paternalistic super no. quick <laughs> hey give me a break uh. give me a break let's say you have two teenagers and you're their teacher not their parent okay you're their teacher <laughs> calm your jets man let me talk uh-huh. all right there's two t- kids one kid they both do their homework one kid does their homework because they're afraid of getting in trouble the other kid does their homework because they love learning which kid is more advanced in their concept of knowledge and their desire to be a positive force in the world and which kid is probably going to really own their learning more the kid who's afraid or the kid who's in love you know like there Mm. there is i think it can be incredibly sophomoric to live out your life in fear of judgment versus living your life in utter love and judgment will not follow you because you're acting in utter love. You know, I think, so I I do think it is a sidetrack. I really do. But but, I think it teaches us to fear God in a bad way. But the Pope did invoke the, 
the pub rarely tells people you have to be careful or you're going to go to hell. But there was a moment where he spoke to the mafia in his you know hometown and said, you must be careful because you're playing with fire. Like, who knows if you're going to be judged? You may be judged at the end of time for all the evil that you've done. So maybe well, there is a tool of fear for people who are oppressors that need to needs to be instilled in those people. It's not just like. Yeah, if you're oppressing Homework. people and committing <laughs> evil acts against them, yeah, of course. But I, think- I disagree. I, even then, I don't think it's a it's a it's a motivator. I mean, that's making an assumption, mm-hmm. and that's categorizing like because I'm in criminal activity that the only thing that's going to cause me to rethink is Look, judgment. I, I think, think those statements. These are all I, utility <clears throat> questions. You guys keep coming back to utility questions. How does it? How does this? You know, effectively get people to change or effectively do this, as opposed to looking at like the end or like theological questions. Like if there is, if someone does believe there is a judgment, which I I do, I do believe there will be a judgment. I do believe there'll be accounting for people's actions in the afterlife personally. And like, if that happens, then whether something motivated you to change or do something or do more good or do less good, that does matter, but it's not, it's not the end of my theology. You know the way I mean? that I, the way that how I is read... it not though? How is it? How is a final judgment not the end of your theology? Like no, I'm that, saying questions that, from that point. I, but you, you misheard, okay. you misheard me. I'm saying questions of what got me to change are not necessarily the ultimate questions. Does that make sense? What, what I, what I think is like, I think that Christianity in the past couple of centuries has made the mistake of taking of flattening the Christian message, making it too small and making it into a moral code Agreed. instead of something that transforms the world for the better. And I think that if there is a judgment, let's just say there is, mm. if there's a judgment, is God going to ream you out for saying too many swear words or not feeding your hungry neighbor? Like, which yeah. is the worst offense? And I think if we only focus on individual salvation and piety, we miss that whole thing. So, so let's go back. So God is God going to ream you out for not mentally assenting to the propositions of the Bible and the gospel and praying the prayer, or is God going to ream you out for not feeding your hungry neighbor? Let's look at the words of Jesus. Jesus said, if you go visit people in prison, you've, you know me. If you fed people Mm. who are hungry, who come to your door, you know me. But if you say, you know me, that doesn't mean you know me. Exactly. Hmm. And so I think that's a really strong case for what we call Christian universalism or Unitarian universalism. There's two, uh, some people don't know the difference. The, the Christian universalism believes that Jesus kind of came and, and blanket redeemed the whole world at once. Mm-hmm. No, no matter what your creed or no matter if you've even heard the word Jesus, like Jesus's work on the cross and, and redemption is effective for you. Unitarian universalism takes us a step further and says, no, all religions actually do lead to God. Um, so you can believe that yeah. Jesus' work is effective in saving everyone. So that's like the ultimate what about you? salvation. Because the, the question is, that that's actually the second question, and that's why they're so tied, is right. is Jesus the way to heaven or whatever, or the way to the redemption? Way. Yeah, the only way. What, how would you guys personally answer that? Jesus, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, right? Mm-hmm. If you walk in truth and life, if you walk in the way of Jesus, like let's say you – reject Jesus for a myriad of reasons. Let's say you you associate Jesus with utter colonialism and domination and you don't want anything to do with Jesus. Let's say you've never heard of Jesus. You know, if if you I think that that statement can be interpreted in a universalist way to say yes. that if you walk in the way of love and truth, you know Christ. 
you you know the spirit of Christ. You know grace is working in your life. You know you could say it in orthodox terms, or you can say it another way to say that um, that God would have mercy on those who've been utterly hurt mm-hmm. by the church. And if that means not accepting Jesus in your heart, that might be a true religious act in like terms of C.S. Lewis kind yeah. of thing. So. Yeah. I think to this, the whole only way thing, like, I think Jesus is the only way is to, in terms of like, Mechanism. walking. I think the, I think, I think that statement is like true as far as saying, what am I trying to say? Walking in truth and life. If you're not working, walking in truth and life and love, then you don't know Jesus. I don't care how Christian y your life is or how Christian y your mm-hmm. words are. Yeah. So I think it's way, it's way more complicated than just confessing Jesus. You know, and you have to look at the 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 instructions to confess Jesus in the early church and in canonical writings are as much political statements as they are about individual salvation and maybe sure. more so. Like those are yeah. political; those are politically charged affiliation statements. Um, That's a really that have, good point. Yeah. So what, for what, me, what about you though, yeah. Jeff? Uh, Is Jesus the only way to salvation? I, to salvation or to heaven? To heaven. And Sorry, I, I don't know. Like honestly, like I know where that question is coming from, and that that rhetoric, it, like the question itself, is not nuanced enough for me to answer correctly without without creating a false dichotomy of either or. Okay, so I would believe that <laughs> I would believe there is a heaven personally, and I and, and I do believe that Jesus is the only way. This is just to define different camps of thinking, even on our podcast. I do believe that there is a heaven. I do believe Jesus is the only way. And I do believe Jesus is the mechanism. Whether everybody's going to be redeemed in the end and everybody's going to enjoy the afterlife, I have no idea. I hope so, but I don't know. I think judgment's a real possibility for people, and we need to be concerned about that and the actions that we take. But if every single person ends up completely redeemed in the end and enjoys this afterlife with God, Jesus was the mechanism that got us there. That's why I believe personally, but you would think that that's honestly, the honest question is, I don't know. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I know that I, I really resonate and love the things that Jesus teaches and I'm going to do whatever I can in my lifetime to make sure that I create a world that he represents in the way that he speaks and interacts and all that kind of stuff. But what happens after that? I don't know. I don't think I don't think a lot of the biblical teachings about judgment are referring to uh, decontextualized, spiritualized rendering. They're They're talking talking about about national judgment. (laughs) They're talking about natural historical judgment or or what was read as judgment, like the the dismantling of Jerusalem in 87. I think most of I think most of what is written in the New Testament could be categorized that way. But I do think there still is an apocalyptic message, whether you say that came later and was just added to scripture in Jesus's message, or whether that was a real integral part of his message, we can disagree, but there is at least some things in the Bible that point to this. And that's that's fair. And I just want to say one more thing though. I, I do think, I think it is important not to be completely dismissive of a longing for divine judgment. You know why? Because it's a longing for justice on earth. And a lot of times people like when the Pope was making those statements about the mafia, this is fascinating to me. The Pope is pointing to the fact that earthly governments have failed people and protecting them from Mm. that crap you know, mm-hmm. and protecting them from evil. And so when we're saying we're longing for divine judgment or saying that divine judgment is there for those people who are oppressing others, we're saying it, it's kind of a cry of the heart to say that like our, we, we fail at protecting each other. That is not the way it should be. And that's not the way that God wants this world to be. And that's not the way of love, you know? So I think that it's a really profound, 
almost a prayer to say that judgment is coming. Whether I believe it's actual judgment or not is, is it, but I'm not, it's not up to me. I'm not, to, I'm not God. You know, mm-hmm. I, I haven't determined. I, I do have a hard time just seeing God as like, what a lot of people see the judgment of God is that God is in the sky waiting to strike you with lightning if you screw up and if you're, you know, and call you a bad person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a horrible conflation of what is a really holy cry for justice in the world. Well, I think that kind of connects. I mean, we've at this point, we've shown and not told the answer to this question, but <laughs> we can. So this next question comes from Mia uh, from Facebook, and she asks, what are some elements of your faith that have stayed the same? during your transition away from mainstream evangelicalism? Um, and then she'd like for all three of us to answer, which I don't think we'll have a problem doing. <laughs> this is 50 episodes. The first episode was, we are all in one way or another finding ourselves outside of traditional evangelicalism that we grew up with. And like we're in this post-evangelical wilderness and we're trying to figure it out. I think it's safe to say that all of us are still have very different views from one another, even this far out into the podcast. Right. Well, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants us to be the same person? That's creepy. You uh, must conform. And, and at the very beliefs. beginning, I said that I was probably more evangelical than uh, than you two, and I think that's probably still the same. Like, I don't know what to call myself. I don't know if I should be a progressive evangelical. Define or... categories. I know. Well, if, I, if I remember right, I'm pretty sure that you still considered yourself evangelical. Sort of from that first episode. So I, I said you sort still claim the term. No. No, I said I don't know what I am. I remember very well. I said I don't know what I am, and I, I am. I good thing we have recorded history, and we can find out for sure. <laughs> but we'll put links to the first episode in the show notes, never, so you can check. I'm it out. I'm never wrong. I'll correct. tell you that. So maybe I still am evangelical. I don't know. That was a joke, by the way, my evangelical brothers and sisters. I feel you. <laughs> well, I, but I think it reflects actually evangelical is not monolithic anymore either. It's like not. I. Have, one of the people I graduated from college with is now like heading up or really involved with like evangelical for climate change. There's a, there's a whole, there's whole groups of evangelicals who are, who are really grappling with these questions. And there, it's not just one way. It's not just the Billy Graham way yeah. or, or the highway. It's, well, it's I think more this diverse is a, than a, that. A personal question before we get too much into definitions. I basically, I think she, yeah. what she's asking, take away evangelicalism from when you started your faith journey till yes. now. What do you think? What Jeff? have you held on to? What have you held on to? I would say that I've hold, held on to the basis of everything. Like I'd still say that that my motivation from the beginning was, uh, which it, you know some people would say cliche, but I wanted to be a better person and I wanted to treat people well, and that my my motivation I feel like has always been people, and I stacked this theology on top of that base or that foundation, and now I've you know done a few remodels, but I would say that the base is still there, as in the sense that. Um, I, my foundation, going back to the past question, my foundation may have been a little motivated by, you know, what's going to happen to me after I die, but not anymore at all. But I would say that, I don't know, the same, it's been all the way through is like, how do I care for people? As far as like the theological elements that I've held onto, I still have a high regard for scripture. Um, it's just expressed in a different way. Um, so I would say, I guess I guess those are the two main things. I have a lot of thoughts. I have spent a lot of the morning thinking about this actually. Um I think for me, and th- this kind of goes back to what you're saying Alan, like I think in the face of the real, like capital R real, like when we encounter those things that are unmissable in life, like big events or change or terror or whatever, when we encounter the real, um I mean I, I'm kind of borrowing I'm thinking about Bonhoeffer here. Um 
and I'm I'm kind of fascinated by his writings, but he he kind of said that like all knowledge points to all knowledge is kind of a vehicle or like a I'm not I'm not going to do this justice, but like an access point to encountering the real and Christ is like the glasses that allow us to see it clearly. And so for him, it was Christ was indisposable, but not in like the salvific evangelical way that a lot of us are taught to read Bonhoeffer. He's actually a lot more progressive than we think about him often. But so for me, I think a grounding in the real and a seeking for what really matters still still really permeates my theology and my thoughts. And I think for that reason, I can't discard a concept of God because the the God the God that is the the capital R real the God that saturates the world and gives the world meaning or is is meaning um, and is not a thing or is maybe even not a being but is like the will to be or the will to exist or life itself you know these are concepts borrowed from like Bonhoeffer and Tillich that I think I I, I think it's not that my Christianity has crumbled I think it's expanded like big time and I think that's encouraging because. Like I even think about a lot of my Pentecostal roots and I'm coming back to some of these ideas um, in really profound and more nuanced, complex ways that open them up instead of close them down. Like, for example, um, you know, I was taught growing up to pray like we, we, we did a lot of binding and loosing praying. If you come from a charismatic Pentecostal tradition, you understand what that means, like based on the verse, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Um, this idea that like what happens in heaven mirrors the earth and that we have the power to liberate or not, and that Jesus ultimately comes as a liberator, that's a very Pentecostal theology. For me, that's turned into a political theology um, and a, a theology of social justice, but it's still, the chorus of it's still there, the, the idea that God does that God wants us to live in freedom. The core is still there for me. The idea that we're all interconnected, both materially and physically. I don't create a divide between the two realms anymore. I, I try not to be dualistic in my thinking, but I still think that what happens to one of us, you know, affects another person. And that's why empathy is so important. Um, that the world is radically integrated, you know? Um, and I think also of like a lot of times we used to quote Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, and I did a kind of an, a light exegesis of this on my blog. We can put a link to the show notes. Um, I have a little blog. It's monamadeset.wordpress.com. And I did a kind of an exposition on this verse. Um, it's the verse is without a vision, people perish. And actually the word vision is in in the uh, the Greek is is actually like a vision of justice. So without justice and law and order, people either perish. And the word perish is kind of evokes a fight or flight traumatic um, metaphor. And so without a, without a vision for justice, without safety, without society protecting each other and protecting the good and protecting meaning and the right, people freak out or they fail to want to live. And so for me, that's like, so I still, I still like that verse, but af, as like a post-Pentecostal, I, I see it differently, if that makes sense. So um, these are the kinds of things I've held on to and that drive me forward to, to still hanging on to a concept of meaning, even though it's really hard because there's not like these fixed, like, this is good, this is bad, this is blah, blah, you know, that it, it's the deeper you get into this stuff, um, the more fuzzy it gets. But I think there's a lot of hope in that. But I think, yeah, what Jeff said, like a, a love for life and people has always been at the core and it still continues to be at the core for me. And I think that reflects God's desire for, um, uh, us to be in relationship with each other, to be intimate with each other, and to love each other deeply. I think that's that's the entire message of Christianity. If we miss that, we've missed the whole thing. That's mm -hmm. really good stuff from both of you, and I feel like mine 
<laughs> it's just going to look like a laundry list if I share what I retained. You must. You must answer the question. <laughs> well, pick pick the highlights. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> highlight reel. I feel like there's so much. I mean, like I pointed to every a lot of things that have changed um, over the course. Like my view of the Bible is no longer inerrant, but I still hold on to a very high view of the inspiration of the Bible, it being the work of the Holy Spirit. I do believe in the Trinity. Um, I believe in the incarnation that God, that Jesus was fully God. I think for me, it really does come down to worshiping Christ. It's not just about, for me, following Christ, um, but it's also worshiping Christ as God come in the flesh. And that's that's like my theological makeup as a Christian that's central to, to what I think. So the things I think about the Bible and how to live in the world and how to be a part of the church or not a part of the church, focus on who Jesus is and what worshiping Jesus looks like. And one final thing to round out my laundry list is that I believe in prayer. In the last episode with Joey Asterbaum, we talked about prayer being the thing for him. And that that's very true in my life too, is that I believe prayer actually changes things and changes people. And it's very core to my, my belief. That'll do it for our questions this week. Thank you so much for those of you that have been here since the beginning on episode one. And those of you who will continue to follow us through hopefully 50 episodes and much, much further beyond. So in regards to these specific questions, tell us what you think. You can do that at uh, com slash 50 and there you'll see some of the links of the things we've talked about and you can comment on the questions there as well and we are always looking for new topics so anytime you want to communicate to the show and recommend something that we can talk about you can do that at com slash feedback and there you'll see all the ways that you can get a hold of us so on the other side of the music we're going to be having a little discussion on some current events All right, so this week instead of a game or a fun segment, I guess this won't. It's not. This is not going to be fun because uh, anytime we randomly pick a topic and start discussing it without any prep, it's always going to be fun. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're just going to talk about a couple things that are in the news. If you're hearing this on the day it posts, it's February sixteenth, two thousand sixteen. So in case years from now or weeks from now someone comes back to that and they're like, "What are they talking about?" Take into context our historical context. <laughs> Mona, you had something uh, that you wanted yeah. to talk about. So some of us have been following the death of Justice Scalia. Um, and I have been really disturbed by some of the things that my very progressive liberal friends have been saying about his death. And if you don't know much about the Supreme Court or or Scalia's um, residency on the Supreme Court, and I don't know a ton about it, but I do know that Scalia was the voice of the conservative sort of wing of the Supreme Court and passed a lot of um, rulings that liberals like just, to be honest, like really hated the guy for, like really gridlocked the Supreme Court and caused um, rulings that that uh, were were considered bigoted by some. So when he passed, some of my f- friends, God bless them, said horrible things about him. Like I saw postings like ding dong, the wicked witch is dead and thank, you know, thanking God or whatever, like people saying horrible things, saying, saying, enjoy the ground and stuff like that. So my question was, ah, oh, it just really bothered me. I don't care how much you hate somebody like just to rejoice over their death is I think really quite awful. And it doesn't like live out, um, an ethic or a, a loving, I mean, but that's the thing, like, should, do we always have to 
be fluffy and loving to everyone, even the people that we detest. So I guess that's a question I'm just wrestling with. No, like <laughs> we don't have to be fluffy and loving, but to celebrate their death is it's pretty brutal, right? It's like it's brutal, pretty difficult to yeah. do, at least from a but Christian I under- perspective. Justin Martyr even said, like, we, we can't even stand the yeah. death of our enemies. And he's an early Christian thinker. And, that, and that's Jesus, too. Like, loving your enemies looks like dancing on their grave. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> Jesus. So, that sounds like know? Jesus. <laughs> it, it really bothered me, though. I had the opposite. You had the opposite? It, it just, I haven't been followed. Yeah, I haven't. First of all, I haven't been following Scalia's death. Um, I know that he w- had had some opinions against um, gay marriage and some other things. And so when he died, it just got shoved in my face by all my friends online. <laughs> I had people that were like, oh, it's interesting he died. Some people put that like as a little aside. Like they don't want to say they're happy, but well, it's politically it looks like interesting. they are, you know. And then, yeah. And, and, and then on the other side, there were people who were like super sad really scared that a different judge is going to be put in. And so it's instantly politicized the moment he was dead on both, on both occasions, on both sides. And so I had all these people writing these long treatises on why we should wait to appoint a judge the next year after the election year. Obama shouldn't. That's not constitutional. Right That's a ridiculous and, argument. Yeah. Which is really funny because they're like, they are the people who are defending yeah. the constitution. They're the ones that are That's pushing for that. Crap. And it's, That's not it's it. just, yeah, it just it's just one more instance of every single human being when it comes to politics will use whatever ends they whatever means no, they No, some of us will will like, some of us true. will try to stay in the realm of democratic <laughs> process. And that's the thing, like you can hate Scalia all you want and hate his legacy and hate his rulings, but he still participated in the democratic process. He he didn't throw try to stage a coup when a ruling got passed that he disagreed with. He still participated in the conversation. And he often voiced the will of the people even if it was completely wrong, yeah. in my opinion, he he was in touch with all the feelings of a lot of people. I don't know. I'm not a constitutional scholar. I don't know if that's how justices should make their decisions or not. But um, he was a well, voice yeah, for a and lot it's, of people. It's interesting because I was like on Wikipedia reading about him after you know he passed because I didn't know much about him, and I wish I kept more up on this stuff. But um, this kind of goes back to the beginning of the episode. What I won't uh, dredge it up too much, but. Um, but he believed that the Constitution was not a living document, that it was fixed, that there was kind of like a, it, it was kind of an access point to universal truth and that it shouldn't be um, it shouldn't be interpreted like fluidly over time. But there was like a right answer, you know, so he kind of represents an old guard of interpreting truth and kind of a modernist way of thinking. So that's why a lot of progressive c- couldn't stand him because also when someone gets into the Supreme Court, as you know, you can't get them out really unless they die. Like that's the only way to oust them. So um, I think that's why almost the appointment of the Supreme Court is more significant politically than who gets elected the next president because the president might be there only four years, yeah. but the Supreme Court justice like Scalia could be there for decades. So are you signing on the dotted line when you become a Supreme Court justice to have your death politicized? Well, I think you can resign. Like you, you can are. retire from the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. People retired. Yeah. We don't force them <laughs> to be our No, no, they, they choose mm-hmm. to Because re- we've had a couple. I think uh, Bush appointed one or two maybe that retired during his presidency. And I think at least one so far in Obama's presidency is already retired and he appointed someone. Correct? Yeah. Um, Sotomayor. <clears throat> She, that's yeah, who there we appointed. go. That's right. And that was a big rigmarole. But like we, th- this is the thing. And that, that process got delayed for months because Congress has to, I feel like I'm giving you guys, 
giving a lesson in democratic process. But the Congress <laughs> has to uh, verify, like they have to review and verify whoever yeah. the president wants to appoint. So it's a balance yes. of power thing. Um, but Sotomayor yeah. got dragged through the mud because the Republicans, I think in the House, and more the House maybe than the Senate, I don't remember the details, but like really tried everything they could to oppose. But now that we live in an age where like our, our government's being shut down, by Republicans and our government and and maybe some Democrats too and our and people aren't like reviewing budgets and stuff like our our fundamental democratic processes aren't working because people just are refusing to participate in them not just disagree but they're refusing to participate so that makes me really nervous when people say things like let's just suspend the constitution for a while till we get someone in office that yeah. we like like Donald Trump can you imagine the so he probably appoint himself as the supreme court justice cuz no one could do as good of a job as him i think this whole conversation centers on the idea of objectifying celebrity in my opinion whether oh, it's really? a politician or a sport or any a sports person or anything like that when people die it's hard to look at them as human beings mm. when they represent more than who they are like he represented way more than a human being normally would and so we it's hard to engage him as a regular human being and not just some political entity so you think when people are like rejoicing over his death they're not rejoicing over the death of the person but the death of what he represents absolutely that's that's and a really that, interesting a sad, criticism or a yeah point. yeah the the sad thing about that is that you've lost the person in the process of becoming the icon, mm. you know. But if we don't radically humanize people and and seek to retain their humanity, we're we're I think that's an act of violence, though. You know, like mm. we're not modeling the humanization that we're trying to promote in the world yes. by losing sight I, of I their agree. personal death and their their human death. That's why when people dance in the streets, when Let's just take it further. Osama bin Laden died and people danced in the streets. I was horrified. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going to mention the same thing. I, I felt the same way when people were celebrating his death. Like, I did not feel comfortable with that at all. What about, okay, we always go to Hitler. We, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hitler should not be funny, but I mean, okay. But what about rejoicing when someone like Hitler dies who has been murdering people? Like, or you, you are rejoicing Charles that the Manson. oppression, you're rejoicing that the oppression is over. Not that someone, not died. that a human being has ceased to exist. That's, I, I think, think that's, that's the way to think about it. So I wanted to, I just wanted to read a quote from a friend of mine who posted on Facebook. He's a, a, a gay person of color. And he said, my theology has been shaken tonight over the death of Scalia. The man's life very well contributed to the oppressive systems that have subjugated blacks, women, and gay Particularly in terms of blacks and higher education, he has said and done some of the most heinous things. Nevertheless, do I dem deny him humanity? Do I not acknowledge his sacred worth? Is he too not created in the image of the divine? Or is that just something I say to marginalized people to make them feel better about their circumstances? Did he fall far from grace? Am I pandering to oppressive theologies to love my enemy? What does it mean to love your oppressor even in their death? My theology is shaken. I'm at war with my mind. I am disturbed and discerning. Speak, Jesus. Well, see, I feel like that we need a sound. Of, we need a mic drop sound effect like <laughs> that right there. We, is, need, we need to have the voice struggle. You know, it's not yeah, one side or another. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's hard because like That's you stuff like this particular person, this justice didn't per se. I mean, yes, for over women's reproductive rights, he, he's he's said some things that have like direct effect over my person but didn't per se like do or say anything but but he uh, against us maybe as much but like this this friend of mine who's a, per, a, a black person of color like the rulings that this guy tried to promote directly affected their person in their life you know so it's i think it's important to listen to people who have direct experiences and see what they struggle with and to see that they're humanizing their enemy 
or they're trying to, you know, and even when it's really, 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 really hard. Agreed. All right. Well, on that, I think that'll do it for us this week. We probably went a little long, but we can because it's our show and we're celebrating 50 episodes, 50. right? 50 years. I mean, weeks. <laughs> 50 yes. years? Oh, my God. Can you guys imagine? did Jeff if call this our golden episode because- or something like that? <laughs> What if Yay. what if we're still doing this in fifty years when we're Let's so old? That, I don't think I'm going to make it another fifty. Longest standing <laughs> podcast ever is that is that what we're there going go. for? That's, That's our goal. For. That's our goal right now. <laughs> it's been a delight and a joy, you guys. I yes, agree. thank you. It's, having these conversations you, are the listeners. highlight of my week, and for everyone who interacts with us, uh, it's awesome. It's totally a thrill to do this show. Awesome. Agreed. No arguments here. And if you enjoy what you hear, you can always support the show by going to irenacast.com slash support, and there you'll see all the ways that you can show your appreciation, including our Amazon banner. If you click on that, um, if you click on that banner or bookmark the link next time you shop Amazon, that would really help the show out. And as always, we do want to hear from you. So again, if you have any questions, contact us at irenacast.com slash feedback. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. Whisper it, Jeff. Jeff, whisper it. Whisper it. Whisper it. Do 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 it. Do